Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, the University of Texas at Austin has an open rank faculty position at the Department of Design in the School of Design and Creative Technologies. Of course, this is in Austin, Texas. And if you're looking for remote work, Bandcamp is hiring a user experience designer. Companies, stop making excuses on your D&I efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Happy New Year, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we start off with this week's episode, I've got two quick things I want to mention. First up, as you've probably seen if you follow us on Twitter or Instagram, Recognize is coming back for 2021. We'll be announcing the submission period for Volume 3 of Recognize pretty soon, so make sure you keep an eye out on our social media for that. Remember, we're on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Revision Path. Also, 28 Days of the Web is coming back in February, which is also our anniversary month. We'll be turning eight years old. Wow. Um, 28 Days of the Web, for those who don't know, is when we honor a different black designer or developer or creative for each day in February. 14 men, 14 women, 28 Days of the Web. Pretty simple. To check out the past year's honorees, head over to 28, that's the number two, the number eight, 28daysoftheweb.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Nichelle Pace, founder and CEO of Brand Enchanting Media and co-host of the podcast, The Culture Niche. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I am Nichelle Pace. I am the president and founder of Brand Enchanting Media, which is a small creative agency consultancy here in Camden, New Jersey. Nice. First off, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Happy (laughs) New Year. How are you feeling about 2021? I'm feeling hopeful. I'm very hopeful that 2021 will be the year of the turnaround. While I was away, we did our uh, the Chinese New Year horoscopes, and 2021 is supposed to be year of the ox. So there was a lot of visions for prosperity and abundance for 2021. So I am trying to manifest that in all facets of life for 2021 and, and have a hopeful lookout. I, I feel like we hit rock bottom, so <laughs> you can only go up from here. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I know 2020 and for people that are listening, I'm not going to drag on 2020. I'm not going to do it because I've heard a lot of you say you don't want to hear about the pandemic. I get it. Um, And I know that it was a difficult year for a lot of people. But when you look back, like, how would you sum up 
how last year went for you just in general? Part of me feels guilty a little bit because the pandemic actually resulted in a bit of a reset and opportunities for my business. So this was our biggest year to date in terms of billings and knowing so many other people were struggling. It's hard to like weigh those emotions and, and try and celebrate your success when the world is literally on fire around you. But by the grace of God, and the opportunities that came, I mean, everything from the social justice movement actually yielded more brands and companies and organizations trying to work or find more minority voices, as we all very well know, but that turned into opportunity for my company. So this, you know, we had a pretty big client early on in the year. I mean, it was bittersweet because we didn't get to keep them all of 2020, but for the the three to six months that we did work, it was our largest client. We worked with a wine brand um, out in California. We'd like to sustain and take it, but we might have been a little too small at the time. And then they had some internal issues. And, the, you know, the pandemic can sometimes cause challenges in execution, production, internal staffing. Not all clients are going to be transparent that, you know, they had to cut staff and other things of that nature. But 2020 was actually the year of growth just for me as a a business owner and for our company. It was challenging, you know, on the personal side of things with school and my youngest son, who's now a senior. So trying to balance the disappointment of not having a traditional senior year, missing track season, missing a pen relays and, and balancing those things out, but yet having a good year in terms of my business, you know, you, you kind of vacillate between feeling excited to take the opportunity during the pandemic, but at the same time guilty, like, okay, I'm thriving and others are not. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a lot to kind of digest, to be honest with you. And I'm sure I'll probably sit down and have a good cry <laughs> at the end of the year. <laughs> well, I think, you know, a lot of people probably are, are feeling that way. It's funny you mentioned that about the sort of surge in business because, I remember when all of those protests were happening and certainly there were a lot of companies that spoke up about them wanting to be on the side of, you know, social justice and many <laughs> people of color and other minority groups sort of clapped back in a way saying, oh, well, that's great. What about this? And in a way that kind of did materialize into a lot of attention and business and such on people of color. I remember just getting asked a lot, like, well, what does this mean? How is this going to change? I'm like, we'll see. Like, this is a, a spike right now. Like, keep that same energy, like keep that going. Like, how will this, yep. if this sustains through next year and, and moving forward, that's great. But if you go right back to business as usual in the fall, then we're going to know that something was up. So yeah, it can be hard to kind of reconcile those feelings, especially with, you know, as much as that is occurred because of the virus and and everything. So again, for listeners, I'm not going to dwell on it, but I totally understand where you're coming from though. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It's a lot. Let's talk about your consultancy brand enchanting media right now. Like what does a a typical day look like for you? So a typical day for me is 
first of all, I usually start off listening my morning with like news, creative news, whether it be fast company or, or something of that nature, just to get a, a beat and a pulse on what's going on in our industry in real time. Mm-hmm. And then going into emailing project check-in with my teams every Monday, we have a team regroup call just to kind of go over what we're doing for the week. There's eight of us now, you know, and it started as a consultancy of one with three or four subcontractors. Now we're a team of eight with uh, three or four subcontractors that we work with. So a typical day is just running through projects. Um, and since we're in that moment of growth, we've been doing a lot of business development work. So a lot of that is our own internal. We are the client. So the last two quarters of 2020, we made ourselves the act, one of our actual clients <laughs> mm. in terms of how we're going to market and develop the agency brand and get the agency's name out there more. So half of that time is spent, you know, dealing with different client works. We work with clients such as the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, who we work with to do a lot of marketing and outreach going back to pandemic-related as uh, things that the businesses and, and communities need, particularly for small minority women veteran-owned businesses. So I, that was something I'm passionate about. So we get to do that kind of work and, and market to those communities um, and making sure they're aware of all of the resources and support that's out there for them. And then working with more uh, consumer brand and retail clients that we were planning for some project work that's kicking off actually uh, the first week of January. One client is a retail pharmacy here that we are doing some work for for their 90th anniversary, as well as just working on new business development. And we we also are launching our own podcast that hopefully you get to come on and talk one day called The Culture Niche. Okay that talks about the intersection of culture, creativity, social responsibility, media, and technology, and and how that all kind of coexists in the world today in real time. So it's been interesting to say the least. So, you know, there is really no typical workday. You know, I also serve as vice president of the local business association here of the board of directors. So part of you know, the work that I do, which is more community facing, is sometimes fielding calls from other business owners. New Jersey just passed the legislation for the whole cannabis industry. So I've been getting oh, yeah. tons of calls about how can our community leverage and not get left out. You know, for the past three years, we've weighed in with like the African American Chamber of the State and different legislators to make sure that we are, our voice is at the table for this. But now that the business side is coming into play, a lot more people are trying to figure out how we mobilize our community to not to have seats at these tables and and, and not be on the menu. So my workday always juggles back and forth between what we're doing as an agency, our client work, what we're doing to market ourselves as an agency, going after new clients, feeling those relationships, and then shifting gears to the leadership role I have in a small business community in the city of Camden and within Camden County here in New Jersey. Nice. And you're coming up on five years now, correct? Yes. Five years in April. 
I Congratulations. Can't it. Thank you. I, I was told that's supposed to be a good milestone that if I'm still standing in five years that I should be able to sustain my business. So Yeah, that's that's a huge milestone. It, it really is. I, I I remember hearing that a lot of particularly like black owned businesses, like if they get past that first year, it's great. But certainly if you hit the five year mark, like that's that's the time when you can really start like hopefully breaking out and doing more things, you know, more services or just branching out in terms of, of business and everything. So that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. it it's kind of surreal for me because like you said, a lot of black owned businesses and especially black women owned businesses have, it's been such an uptick in entrepreneurs. But if you look at the statistics, we don't increase. We have a lot of single person LLCs or single person consultancy or two people consultancies. And we have to start producing more companies that actually yield employees, whether they be part-time or contract employees where we could start growing. And that's something I wanted to make sure that I did as I grew a company that just wasn't going to be me as the face and the consultancy and that I could actually contribute to the economy by creating jobs. And that's something I think I hope all of our black entrepreneurs tries to do is to create jobs and eventually get to W-2 employees because that's our goal for the end of 2021 is to have everybody as a W-2 versus a 1099. Let's go into that a little bit more because earlier you said that you initially started out the consultancy with it just being you and then now you've grown to a, a team. What was that sort of tipping point where you knew you had to make that choice to bring on more people instead of trying to do everything yourself? I started off always bringing in more people, but it was very short spouts, limited time. I did a lot of the strategy work, but I, I started off having a stable of creative talent and digital and strategic talent that I could pull from. So when I did first start, there was another person in strategy that I could work with and like two to three designers and one social person and two web developers. So those people, you're all independents and kind of co-opted projects. So I already kind of did that from inception of my company was making sure that it wasn't just me because I always wanted to have a team and, and wanted to at least on appearances show that this was going to be a legitimate agency and not just a one woman show. The work did fall on me. You know, back then I didn't have an operations person, which we have now to do, handle accounting and, and payroll and, and accounts payable and accounts receivable. We have that now. But back then it was just me. So I, from the beginning of starting my company, wanted it to be an actual company of multiple people versus just me being a single person consultant. But I took the single consultancies as I could. But I also had those resources at my fingertips. So if we did, you know, one of our first clients was a retail client in Center City, Philadelphia, and they actually ended up being in Philly's best of issue for the first 90 days we worked with them after we launched our retail experience store in Center City. I worked with a designer and a photographer on that project, the three of us, and that that yielded really good results. And so, you know, I've been kind of solo, but I haven't been, if that makes any sense. No, that makes sense. 
Because I think when you first start out, you know, certainly you want to try to get a the lay of what your business is and how much of yourself you can kind of give to each of the different parts of the business. You know, like you said, there's operations, there's talking to the client, there's doing the actual work, you know, and eventually you sort of learn that if you really want to grow this or sustain this, that you have to kind of bring people on. So it's good that you had that notion very early on that you always wanted it to be that way. It, it was important. It would definitely was important because I couldn't see myself sustaining a business where it was just all me for the long haul. It, my vision was always to, to, to have a really strong team of people, even if it, it only grew to 10, 20 people max to do some really good work in the space and, and to come in on a foundation. As you know, the, my tagline for our company is a culturally responsible creative agency, mm-hmm. uh, which you find a lot of companies are doing now with the quote unquote social justice movement is now they're just now trying to shift gears to being culturally responsible. You should be culturally responsible from the foundation, I think, of what you build your business on. And and by culturally responsible, I mean, we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, that should already be a foundation. I feel as though we, for my business, we have a plethora of, of different ethnicities, different gender roles, but I think we could do more. Like, making sure everybody is represented, whether it's from the African-American community, Asian-American community, even the the white guy that could be in Ohio, but he's super talented and creative. We need to have all those diverse voices at the table, I think, to produce the best product. And from an economic standpoint, most businesses that invest in diversity in their foundation and their principles make more money. I mean, it's yeah. just advantageous to, yeah. to be diverse because you can make more money. It affects your bottom line. So I, I try and do that within this agency. And that's why we came up with that, you know, that tagline, you know, something that can show that we are culture responsible. And if we don't have a culture represented and we have to work on creativity or any type of creative output that has to go, whether it be we're targeting elderly or if we're targeting the LGBTQ community or if we're targeting young rural moms, we want to make sure that we have a network of people around us that can make sure that we are doing that what's best from a cultural perspective, as well as giving fair representation to all people within that. And and we do no harm. You know, I know it's kind of cheesy, but my favorite tagline, and I give it to everybody, my mentees, <laughs> my team is with great power comes great responsibility. The old Uncle Ben from Spider-Man. I'm a uh-huh. big, you know, I, I love the, the superhero movies and comics and stuff. So it's true. You know, com- as communicators, as marketers, people in the media, entertainment, advertising, and marketing industry, we are responsible for all the communications around the globe. We are responsible for the perceptions. We are responsible for people's moods, their feelings, how they digest, how they take in information, what they pull away. So sometimes I think some of us don't take that responsibility to heart. And I let my team know it's very, you have to be responsible for how you communicate and what images you put out there, even down to the colors and have a tone and a sense of what you're trying to relay to the general public. And because 
we are in charge of communications to the general public, there's a level of responsibility that we should make sure that we are actually doing public a service instead of a disservice with how we communicate and how we execute our creativity. Have you found that like the market has changed over the years as the culture has changed? Yeah, the market's changed in a sense that it's more fickle Mm -hmm. in shorter periods of time because of we're such a connected society now through digital media things shift, you know, we have the advent of things such as cancel culture and those types of things. It's because people and their moods can happen in real time on any digital platform. Obviously, we see that in Twitter, we see the power of black Twitter. I mean, there's, there's whole studies that Nielsen did on black Twitter and and the black consumer. So yeah, because of the speed of communication has changed. That is, you have to be able to pivot, whether it's a creative standpoint or a communication standpoint. The one thing that hasn't changed, which I always tell people, is just communications in general. People and our feelings and our and our humanity is the same. It's just the way it is. Our stories are being told now are a lot different because we are so much more connected, because we can get information at at our fingertips in the palm of our hand through our smartphones. So now, now there's so much more noise of that human experience. And we're, we're always filled and saturated with emotions and images and visuals. So now it's really how do we really kind of harness that to create positive experiences with within all these various mediums. So it's changed in terms of speed, but I don't think it's changed in terms of sentiment. Human, human, you know, human nature is still human nature. That's one thing that's never going to change, but because of speed, the, the shift in mood and consciousness that happens is so much more faster than it was 10 years ago. Yeah. It's amazing how, social media is such a catalyst or or an accelerant for, for a lot of this. I've seen people, I've seen businesses just take a complete nosedive after just a few hours of, you know, attention on Twitter. Like it's it's almost scary how quickly it can happen. It, oh, it totally is. It is. It is it's scary, but at the same time, I think there's something that can be said for when you're being more transparent, authentic, honest, if you will. So you, you, and you have to be willing to take the risk to take the beating. That's another thing. It's not so much that your company may take a beating or your brand or your business may take a beating for something that's said or done online, but it's really in the bounce back. Cause we all, as humans, we all love a good comeback story. We love redemption. You know, mm-hmm. we thrive on that because each of us individually know there's at least one thing our li- in our life or more or tons more that we'd like to be, you know, have some redemption for. So when you can tap into that part, someone's human nature or someone's psyche, the redemption part, then brands can survive some of these missteps. But when some people still try and use the old PR practices of deflect and deny and without authenticity, without real change, without real meaning, without real heart behind it, that's when they definitely will take those nosedives. It, um, I had an instant 
when I was working at another agency in New York, and we were working on Stoli Vaca. I was a global digital account director. So it was like 140 countries, U.S. being the lead market. But we were going, we were facing a boycott, the brand, because of Dan Savage's rant that he went on social media. This was all stemming from the Russian Olympics. Last time it was in Russia and how the LGBTQ community was being treated. Mm -hmm. So without the knowledge that Stoli was, it started in Russia, but it was actually made in Latvia and the owner was not a friend of Putin. (laughs) He was actually exiled from the country, hence why it's made in another country now and had to actually live on his boat and was pushed out the country, kind of, you know, guns in his face. Their story had never been told, you know, especially in a social channel. So as you know, some people were calling for the boycott and we knew the story behind the history of the company. We said, why don't you just let everybody know your story? Let's just start with updating your Wikipedia page with what really happened with the founder, with the owner. And how about let's also tell people you've been hiring and making sure you've been inclusive with your hiring practices with the LGBTQ community since before companies like McDonald's were. But you don't put that in your press. You don't tell those stories. You just do it, which is good without looking for recognition and accolades. But it's time that people knew the heart that was behind that company within 72 hours. Cause we had a whole huge LGBTQ program. We already had tons of people in the LGBTQ community that worked at the company. So we already had advocates on the ground, but telling the story you could see in the analytics, the negative sentiment changed in a matter of 72 hours to kind of avoid that. And that's all because We just went on a a social digital press tour with the CEO, doing things like putting the story out on Wikipedia, letting all of our partners and our employees in the community, you know, do the advocacy within their groups and say, no, we've been working with Stoli. They fund our bars. You know, there's so many things in our community that they've been supportive of. They our bartenders, you know, and the whole uh, bar program. So there was a lot that the company was doing just because it was the right thing to do, but they were never really beating their chest about it. So dealing with that real time, you could see how in 72 hours we turned something that, because some people were posting videos, pour out your Stoli vodka. I mean, that's blasphemy in itself, just on yeah. a personal <laughs> level. Um, <laughs> you know, because before I got the account, that was, one of, that was one of the vodkas I actually like. So, but just watching in real time how when you're, when you have an authentic story and you're being transparent and how you can change perception within 72 hours, that can work for any brand, but you have to have the right people in place that have the emotional IQ. That's really the biggest change is communicators today, marketers, PR people, creators, media industry folks, you have to have emotional intelligence. And that's where I think a lot of people falter is that a lot of people in our industry tend to look through things of their own lens mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, think that we're the creators and the keepers of cool. We are not the creators and keepers of cool. The, the, the culture is the keepers of cool. We're just the ones that tell the story of the cool kids. Yeah. So 
you have to have a higher EQ in this day and age than you did a decade ago. And that's really the big fundamental shift and be able to move on that emotional intelligence at a rapid pace. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've looked back at like old television shows and old advertisements when they run and some of the things that happened even back then, I'm like, there's no way in the world that this would ever occur in 2020. Like, Looking at it through the 2020 lens, it's like there's no way that like they would be canceled immediately. There would be think pieces. There's no way this would happen. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's cringy, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Some yeah. Of the old ads and the old shows. I'm like, we thought this was totally fine and it totally was not OK. Whatsoever. Yeah. But as culture evolves and, and shifts, I mean, I'm sure that happens with many generations. I'm sure back in the 80s when I was in, you know, my preteens and teens, the generation before us was looking at us like, seriously, yeah, we can't do that, you know? So that's going to change, I think, with every generation, how culture evolves and, and what's acceptable and what's the norm and what's no longer acceptable is going to consistently change, I think, as generations go on. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, switch gears here a little bit. You mentioned that you're living in Jersey. Are you from there originally? Is that where you grew up? Yes, I am. I was born in Camden, New Jersey. Okay. Proud Camden girl. (laughs) Camden was in the national news for being a dangerous city, similar to Baltimore, about a decade ago. There's been a lot of change, except, you know, it's funny. They say that, but over the past 10 years, you know, 10 years ago, they were saying it was one of the most dangerous city. But if you look at the actual crime stats, when I was a child in late 70s, early 80s, there was actually a lot more crime in the city. I think it's on the inception of more gun violence is what I think more people were more apt to. Because back then, you know, you, there was a mugging every five minutes <laughs> from what I could remember. Wow. You just had to be careful. You know, and I'm thinking, well, I survived. Well, I don't know what's going on with these this generation. But at the same time, guns weren't as prevalent back then. You would you would have more other types of crimes. But yeah, I'm a. I was born in Camden, New Jersey, because of we talk about that whole '80s crime bill. Because of that, and which, by the way, that crime bill. Let me just backtrack. That crime bill. A lot of our own black mothers supported that crime bill. I think that needs to be said. Because in our inner cities, they saw the crime that was happening. We moved to the suburbs after that. I was about six or seven years old. So in, what's that, 79, we moved to the suburbs. But I still spent my summers in Camden up until age 13 because, you know, all my friends were there. So I still stayed in and around the city. Uh, even when I went to college, I since I went to Temple it was right across when I transferred Camden was only a 20 minute train ride. So I would stay at my grandmother's house where, where I lived as a youngster, you know, so there's a lot of talent that comes out of Camden, which is right across the bridge from Philadelphia, that area. We have Tasha Smith actress. Mm, uh, that Love her. I love her. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Hassan Reddick, who's balling right now for the Arizona Cardinals as a safety and then some of our surrounding towns within Camden County, I can't remember his name, but the gentleman that plays Cyborg in a DC films, he's from the Pensac and Camden area. Oh, uh, Ray Fisher. Of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a lot of talent that comes from this area. A couple are actually down in ATL right now working in the media and 
and film industry behind the scenes. So it's definitely a city that's never a loss for talent. It is going through a rebirth I'm happy to be a part of. That's why I made sure I opened my office in Camden because I wanted to be a, a part of that, the rebirth of the city as more venues start to open. The pandemic kind of slowed some of that, but at the same time, the community is galvanized to really bring the city to another era where, you know, uh, the black and brown business owners and creators can can really thrive in the city as well as our children have a, a good place to be. Yeah, you want to be part of that that positive example. I totally get that. Right. Growing up, were you kind of exposed to a lot of like creativity and art and design and everything as a child? Like, well, did you grow yeah. up seeing a lot of that? Yeah, well, music was the number one creativity. Like, there was music every day in the house. And obviously, the Sunday cleaning playlist, mm -hmm. which a lot of people <laughs> know of, uh, knowing, you know, seeing your mom or your uncles break out all the albums, whether it's, you know, Stevie Wonder, the Ohio Players, and, and just remembering all that music, Tina Marie, every Sunday. So we were very, and then my mother would always go off and I used to always want to go. She would go to the cool jazz festival uh, that was sponsored by cool cigarettes, which was like, you know, almost like the jazz Lollapalooza back in the day. Mm -hmm. and I think it was up in Niagara Falls, if I'm not mistaken. I was so young, but my first concert was Casey and a sunshine band at six flags, great adventure. Nice. In central Jersey. And I was seven. I just remember shaking my Morocco's <laughs> until I almost broke them, you know, to do a little dance, get down tonight. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so music, I think I was exposed to a lot of different music. There was on the waterfront in Camden, there was always jazz Monday nights during the summer concerts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a picture of me and like jazz greats like Wynton Marcellus at the age of 12. So I was exposed to a lot of music when I was younger. And then also my mom painted. So a lot of our paintings around the house were from paintings and sketches that she did. And that mm -hmm. was not as a professional. She, you know, she had her nine to five job working at the U.S. Post Office where she worked for 33 years and retired. But she painted a lot. So we drew and we painted a lot. So painting and music were probably the two art forms that I had on a regular basis from age zero to adulthood. Nice. Now, with, you know, kind of being exposed to all of that, did you sort of at that age or even like in the, you know, the years after that, you know, middle school, high school, etc., did you feel like that was something you really wanted to go into? Or well, did you have other kind of aspirations? Well, the music part made me like dancing. So I yeah. started, you know, I was a little girl. I had ballet, tap. I was in a dancing then. You know, my dream was to be, by the time I was a teenager, was like, I'm going to go dance on tour with like Janet Jackson. I mm -hmm. thought I was going to be a Janet Jackson dancer. <laughs> That's <laughs> really what I wanted to do was to dance. I actually, you know, it's funny. I actually, uh, I might have been in my 20s mid 20s because my oldest son was younger i went on an audition now i might have only been like 22 i went on an audition for stomp oh wow and i made it it was two thousand people i mean ballet dancers all kinds of different folks and i made it to 
the final like 200 people out of 2000, I couldn't even believe it, first of all. But a lot of it had to do with rhythm. And I had danced and cheered and was a choreographer for dance and cheer teams in the local area. So I made it to the finals, and but they wanted me to be on a travel cast that had to go to Japan and Asia for three months. And I just couldn't bring myself to leave my son at the time who might have been one. Oh, wow. You know, so I had to kind of forego that opportunity. So I really thought I was going to be front stage more. Mm-hmm. And then as I started getting more into my career and in, in film, and we could talk deeper about that, I really learned to appreciate being being more of the puppet master behind the scenes, pulling the strings versus having to be front and center performing. Because I was performing all through college, cheer and dance and doing the nationals you see on ESPN. I've, I've done all of that. And then wow. I coached a couple of all-star teams where they got best dance trophy. So dance was kind of where my heart was, but I never made a career out of it like a full-time career. It was, it was part-time, you know, cause I could judge competitions. I got paid to choreograph routines for some cheer and dance teams that were going to the nationals, those types of things. So dance is where like really where it manifested. And I did play a little bit of instruments in like middle school, but I hated having to carry that case. So that was, <laughs> I played the clarinet. It's like you, you're, you're in third grade and you're carrying this heavy behind case to school every day. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I had to walk like a half a mile with that clarinet twice a week to be in the school band. So I just kind of stuck with uh, cheer dance and and sports and track and softball after that. Okay. And so now was this while you were in college or you kind of, you sort of mentioned like this probably was happening in middle school, high school too, right? Yeah. So after high school and, and still dancing, cheering, running track, when I was at community college, we actually started the cheer team there. And went to nationals um, okay. with an all-girl squad. And then I transferred to Temple and cheered D1, which is a whole different experience. For one year, I was the only one that was on both the dance and the cheer team for basketball season. And that was in the big John Cheney days. Basketball was real big there at Temple. And so I would change my clothes at halftime wow. and go dance with the dance team and then go back with my partner on the, on the cheer squad. So I did that. I did do that through college. We didn't get full scholarship, but they gave us free books and, you know, books, college books are expensive. Yeah. So I was, I was a young mother finding my way through college, but I still was cheering, dancing and coaching and choreographing because part of that is how I made my living as an instructor in my early twenties. But then, you know, after that, I started getting into my career into communication, film and television. I thought I wanted to be an investigative journalist, but then I realized I didn't believe in the right to know everybody's business. And you had to want to be. (laughs) And because I'm kind of a private person and I don't want people in my business to to pass all their judgment or cancel culture, as they call it today, I kind of shifted from the journalistic part because I was a sports editor in high school. So I really liked the whole I always liked writing and then shifted my gears to radio, television and film at Temple. And that's where I kind of cut my teeth and got my first gig on a production set and really 
my career started off in film before I switched to advertising. I only switched over to advertising is because we we were working on a film shoot called Condition Red. It had Cinda Williams and another actor. Um, I can't remember his name, Italian guy. And we shot for 22 hours one day. Whew. Right. See, 22 hours. And I'm looking, I'm like, I don't think I want to work for 22 hours, which means technically by the time I got home, it was a 25 hour day. I don't yeah. want to do that. <laughs> wow. So that's kind of what pushed me into looking for production on the advertising things. I'm like, well, what agencies, you can just make commercials and those folks work nine to five, or if they put in overtime, they're not doing 22 hour shoot days. You know, So <laughs> that's what kind of pushed me over to the advertising stuff. But I, I started the first several years of my career in the industry, interning at the local Fox affiliate, doing the rounds in a news station, yeah. learning how to edit. You know, the filmmakers these days get to edit on these great machines and computers. But back then, when I was in school, they taught us how to act, literally cut film and audio by hand like cut it together and splice it together, you know? So I have a different affinity for the television and film and the creative process because I was around before things such as Final Cut Pro even existed. I was around for the first iteration of the Avid editing system. And that's what I learned how to edit film and video mm. on. So having that creative background Boded well for when I finally landed a gig at an ad agency called Darcy, Darcy Macius Benton and Bowles, which you all know now as the giant powerhouse publicists. Um, mm. They were combined. So I cut my teeth on Procter and Gamble brands, working as an account coordinator because I had organizational skills, even though I had a creative and production background, they said, why don't you come into account management? And then when something opens up in our production department, you can go over there. Well, something opened up in production and they wanted me to take an $8,000 a year pay cut. And that Ooh. was <laughs> No. Like, you make less in the production department than you do in the account management department. But in account management, I still get to work with all the production people. Mm -hmm. Let me rethink this. <laughs> so I did stay in account management on the advertising side of things after a couple of stints and some internships. I do have IMDB credit <laughs> as a second assistant director for a couple of film projects I worked on simultaneously while I was still trying to figure out if I'm going to stay full time on the production side of the business and the creative side, or if I'm going to go more on the strategy and the account management piece with the one project I mentioned earlier. Manito was project that we shot in all five boroughs of New York and we actually got an award at Tribeca Film Festival so that was kind of cool that I was the second assistant director on my dad to this day though he, my stepdad he says he's like you were supposed to be Ava DuVernay I was like <laughs> yeah but you know I don't think I had the drive to yeah I, and I did I wanted to be a lady director I was like yeah I was like but the the shoot days and no benefits. And I was like, it was just like, it didn't yeah. fit my personality. I was a young mother. I needed something that was a little bit more stable yeah. or cause my parents, they are blue collar. It's not like, you know, they had like a huge nest egg for me to fall back on that. I could pursue those types of things. Mm -hmm. You know, I even had to turn down an internship on a Chris rock show 
when he had the HBO. Oh, the Chris Rock show. I remember that. So devastated. And I was just like, mom, it doesn't pay. I have a job at an ad agency that pays me $32,000 a year. The Chris Rock show is not going to pay. My job had already gave me three weeks off to go work on a, a video production shoot because, you know, I had just such the dopest boss and they knew I really wanted to work in production back then. So they were very accommodating because they knew I was bringing those skill sets back to the agency anyway, yeah. um, by working on some of those film shoots. But some of those things, I, I had to make some hard choices when you are a young mother, finding yourself being a young mother at the age of 20, but still trying to pursue a career and and education and and all of those good things, you know, so I I had to turn down some things such as stomp or turn down the Chris Rock show. I mean, it would have been, who knows, I might've gone straight into television production on the back end if if I had done that, but I really just could not afford the pay cut because I wanted, I was adamant about affording, being able to afford a living for me and my son and not having to stay in the assistance world of always looking for assistance because I'm not making enough money. So once I got that check, I was not letting go yeah. of that for anybody. I'm, I mean, I have to say like you've, you've already just in, in this past, I don't know, maybe five or five to seven minutes or so you went on a whirlwind of the work that you were doing from college to graduating. And afterwards, I mean, dancing and cheer and film and video production work and then you're working at these ad agencies like did you feel like you were were doing the kind of work that you wanted to do during all this I did I don't know if it was so much me looking for work I was looking for experiences and I don't mean experiences just a notch on my resume that too but I really was looking for an experience for my passions, you know, and, and dance and creativity were some of those things. And then, you know, when I temple really kind of brought out that, that passion for moving images and film and radio production and television, which translates quite easily into advertising because you pretty much are doing the same thing, except you're doing it for brands instead of doing feature films. I was looking for that balance And during that time that I just kind of went through that whole world when I was still, I had one foot in the production side of the industry. I got to work on cool music videos with Boys to Men and LL Cool J was one of them. I got to work with Hype Williams. And that's how I really got paid on the production set. Uh, The producer comes in a store I was working on on South Street after college and says, and I was doing, you know, PA jobs here and there, like as an intern, not paid he comes in, he says, well, oh, you're a production? Oh, we look for PAs. I was helping them get wardrobe for a music video they were doing for Boys and Men in Philadelphia. He's like, well, wh- what do you want to do in the industry? I was like, I want your job. <laughs> I was very blown about it. I said, I want your job. Yeah. And so he put me, he's like, well, let's make you a production assistant. And within 48 hours, he comes to me, he's like, I can't in good faith, watch you work as hard as as you've been working. I mean, I was hustling my butt off. I fell one time and scraped my knee and all these people came to me and came to my attention and was patching me up. I'm like, I'm okay. I'm just bleeding. Just put a Band-Aid on it. But I guess because of liability, (laughs) they had to make sure I was okay. Yeah. Um, And then he said, I got to put you on payroll. You'll be a paid production assistant. 
And I didn't look back after that when I was started working in production and then got the job in the advertising industry. I said, if I'm worthy to be paid, everybody's going to pay me a check. I'm not going to intern anymore for anyone. So yeah, I mean, that those things kind of helped me figure out, I think along the way, figure out what it was that my strengths were and putting the pieces together and working across different functions in the uh-huh. industry, I think is where my strength was because I, I put my time in as a creative on the production side. I had something most account people and marketing executives didn't have. I right. had a sense of actually how to do the creative and they right, did not. Right. Right. So that is where my strength lied in becoming an account manager and then furthering my career in the advertising industry and going up the ladder to, you know, account director and those types of things to start my own agency is because I not only understood the tedious of making a spreadsheet or, or, you know, doing call notes and all those types of things. But I also knew how long things would take if you're making a video or if you're waiting for a rendering because I did it myself. Mm -hmm. And most account people don't have that background, at least when I first started. So all of that, I think, shaped me into understanding that creativity and marketing and media and advertising, it really all is the same world. It's just which lane are you going to play in and how do you work across the aisle with all the other functions within your industry? Because I have to, you know, I've had to, I had to, after New York, I worked at an agency in Philly where we did a lot of event tours. So there was a lot of artists that, you know, today that have gotten paid on the clients that I work with because we selected them to do 14 city tours three times a year. You know, we've worked, I was at a company called Gyro and this was, and they had tobacco and spirits clients. So we had the, the Hendrix gins of the world, the Milagro tequila, RJ Reynolds. So I, I had the cool. So when my mom was going to the cool jazz concerts, I came up with uh, cool was another client in tobacco mm-hmm. and uh, at an agency I worked with after Darcy and we came up with the cool new jazz philosophy tour. So that had folks like the roots life Jennings, LL yeah. cool J that tour was also John legends first as a headliner. That was like my last hurrah at that agency was a cool new jazz philosophy tour. And then we did an old school with like Bismarcky, Dougie fresh. So, you know, I had a good run being able to work across the music industry, being able to work across the film industry, but all it still went back to being at an agency because as a marketer, you have to have contacts in all those different areas to create something for brands. Yeah. Even more so now than back then doing partnerships with spirit bands for these event tours that these are things they had never thought of. I said, well, why instead of, blowing the budget on open bar for the VIP, why don't you bring in a spirits brand to kind of sponsor the bar? Mm-hmm. You know, you are tobacco company, kind of fashion spirits. Like you can bring other brands. You're doing 14 major U S cities three times a year. You don't think there's other brands out there that wouldn't want to get down with that. <laughs> that was the first time the client had actually brought in a consultant agency to help go find those partners that we had suggested, you know, so then 
we got to work with a lot of different great musicians. At the same time, we're still doing print ads and their, and websites and all kinds of other things for the brand. But the the event tours and the experiential part kind of blew the lid off the brand. It was funny because I wasn't working on the event side of the business at the time when I had the RJ Reynolds account. I was working on the print production and the, and the digital piece. And then they had an event in Philadelphia and it wasn't well attended. And one of my loudmouth college friends <laughs> says to my boss, well, if you let Nichelle handle this event, it would be packed. And I'm like, wow. I'm like, you're going to get me fired. <laughs> so they did. And we went on a good two year stretch where all of our events were sold out with me kind of uh, working closely with our creative director and and the partner agencies who actually did all the production management and booking of the artists. So I would come up with the artist list, my team, we would come up with the themes along with the creative director as well for these three legs of tours. We would add experiential components from people swinging from the rafters and gymnasts to live glass blowing to live ice carving. So we just made it a whole experience and we took their advertising and took away the whole notion that it was youth focus and made sure it was nothing but adult focus and kind of up the level to be more 21 plus. That's where I thought being responsible came in. I actually sat in one of those meetings with the clients, a major tobacco client down at Winston-Salem and said to them all, another time I put my neck on a line and said, why are all your ads in the hood? What, (laughs) what, What do you think? You think nobody else smokes menthol cigarettes? Why does it always have to be in the poor neighborhoods or by the liquor store? And, you know, I've made friends, lifelong friends of some of those same people on the client teams. Like, We've always thought it, but we've never said it to our superiors. And mm-hmm. you actually sat in a room and said it. I was like, well, it needed to be said. I was like, you know, these are our people too. You know, we can't just, you can't sit at a table and not take that risk. And not every, you know, most people want to, you know, protect their bag. They don't, they don't want to take that risk. But I thought it was important that I said something about it and said, you know, this isn't just a black brand. There are people of other colors that like menthol (laughs) and people of other colors that don't. I was like, so, you know, we changed the whole perception. When you saw our shows, it was like the smorgasbord of cultures. Everybody was there. You know, you would have, whether it be the white guy, hip hop head, or, you know, the around the way girl, or the the cool, young, white professional that just wanted to be at a cool party. We had everybody in the room. And that and that was the goal, was to show that this has nothing to do with black culture. These events had to do with urban culture. And urban always got the connotation of being black and brown, but it was never about black and brown. Urban has always been about the culture of a city. Yeah. And the city is one of the most diverse places you're going to find. And that that it has to be centered around all cultures and their urban sensibility, not just for black people. So we made that change. And I I was proud of that work to kind of change that perception. Now I, I have to ask this because of course, in the photo that we are using for the cover art, you are wearing a necklace that says style mom. 
please talk to me about where the idea came from to create that, because it sounds like with everything that you were working on and doing, you had a, a pretty full plate between that. And then, like you said, you had your young son. Like, where did Style Mom come from among all that? So I don't know if you remember there was a magazine that came out called more and it was supposed to be for like the 30, 40 plus woman. Right. Uh-huh. So maybe around 2007, 2008, I'm at another Philly agency working with like visit Philly and a, a couple other like smaller clients, not so much national client work. I was trying to be home more and not do that commute back and forth to New York. So I was really focused on working in Philly agencies. So this magazine comes across my desk and I'm looking at it and they're talking about moms and I'm like, well, I'm a mom. And and at this time I'm, I'm 30. I don't know. 2009. God, look at me. Not even know how old I was. Um, (laughs) I'm in in my early thirties. Okay. At this time. Now I have my second son who's, who's a a couple years old. Yeah. Cause he was Oh, three. So my youngest son is six. My oldest son is is like 15, 16. And I'm looking at this magazine like, well, I'm a mom. I don't look like this. Like every, every image and even the commercials back then in the early 2000s going leading up to 2010 was like moms in khakis and cardigans. Like that was your, mm-hmm. that was who you became when you became a mom. And I was like, this is not true. Gen X, I'm a proud Gen Xer. I'm like, we're not the khakis and cardigans moms. That's just not who our generation was. You know, we fought for our right to party <laughs> with the Beastie Boys. We, we're the ones that grew up on the rock and roll and the hip hop. We're the ones that are the the real gatekeepers are cool. Cause if you look at everything that people have and people admire today from the Jay Z's of a world to, to some, even Jack on Twitter, that's all, they're all, they're the younger generation, Gen X and Jay Z being the older generation, Gen X, Gen X is, we're not the khaki and cardigan crew. That was our parents. That wasn't us. So it was just like, you know, I'm just going to start a blog, you know, style, fashion, beauty for moms. You know, we don't want to read this. And you also couldn't read Vogue because that was for like 21 year old you with the short mini skirts. You needed, there was mm-hmm. nothing in between that addressed the sensibility of moms that were still hit cool styles and fashion. Today they call that 40 is the new 30, 50 is the new 40. Mm-hmm. That's what they call it today. But back then, when I started in 2009, it just started as a blog. And I was happy I got the name and the URL. I actually haggled to get that stylemom.com during the dot-com bus because I was like, you know what? I'm not paying $6,000 for this URL. They kept <laughs> bothering me for about a year. The bottom fell out the market. Nobody was buying or starting new websites during the great dot-com bus. I got that URL for like $900, like $847. Mm. So I started Style Mom to to be that, to be like a publication and an extension of my creativity and self. I had to be the face of it for a minute, but I had, you know, I brought in other guest writers, a beauty editor, someone that wrote on jewelry. And it was just, it was, we started it just so we had a space where moms can, you know, talk about fashion or get fashion news and beauty news and and lifestyle and news and health news that wasn't served up unrealistic in a sense of a a Vogue and don't, and I love Vogue, don't get me wrong, but it's not 
always tangible and affordable to a mother. Yeah. Also, I mean, Vogue's a fashion magazine. It's not a, you know, for parents, really. Right. And this wasn't a parent magazine any, either. It was just targeted to moms that actually cared about things that were in a Vogue, but yeah. knew that they couldn't, they didn't, it didn't translate to them because of their lifestyle. So we took what was in magazines such as Vogue and in the cosmopolitans of the world and actually made it applicable to mothers. You know, you can still look stylish. How do you do it in five minutes versus doing a whole makeup tutorial? What are the things you want to use? How can you go from looking like a frumpy mom to not a frumpy mom in five seconds? Add a scarf in a bag, keep it in the car with you. Add a blazer, keep your t-shirt and your jeans on, keep some low heels or keep a bag. Just things that were tangible and accessible and taking fashion and making it more applicable to your lifestyle as a mother than what was currently in the magazines. You either had Vogue, which was not applicable to being a busy mom or just a mom in general, whether you worked or not, or you had at that time more magazine, which is like, okay, now I'm subjected to just khakis and cardigans and wrinkle cream. No, <laughs> absolutely not. I still got a whole biggie playlist. Who's going to talk to me? Yeah. So that's why I kind of started Style Mom. It was to be that, fill that gap in this space. We had some fun with it. We got to partner with CVS and be, I was one of the first people on the old CVS beauty board. We were at the People's Choice Awards. It was funny because we kind of looked like the Charlie's Angels slash United Colors of Benetton because it was myself a Latina, um, a blonde and an Asian woman. (laughs) Like they really was like, all right, we're checking all the boxes for this beauty board. So yeah, that's, that's why style mom came to be. We're hoping to, it's a property now BE media, but we're hoping to be able to blow that out and bring on a full-time editor to kind of revamp the whole project because it has a decent following and and there's still a need in the space. And then you see the, the, with the big rise of the mom bloggers, I had to kind of explain to people like we're more of a fashion lifestyle blog for moms, even though, you know, you could say mom blogger, but I wasn't a mom blogger. I was at all the conferences and they were my network. They were my readers, essentially. And then there was other fashion blogs that were kind of centered around moms at the time. But I had to do the whole fashion week hustle and bustle running back and forth to the tents to get covered so we could get it up on the website and and then you know back in 09 the publicists and and the traditional editors and writers they weren't nice to the blogs they didn't oh yeah was I, there i remember that time vividly i remember that time vividly yeah yeah they weren't nice to us at all so i went from one or two years of, well, who the hell are you to, oh, you got an actual seat on your invitation. Oh, so I don't have to stand and wait. That was nice. So they started seeing the relevance of the digital platforms and the online blogs and, and the influencers and, and the rise of influencers and, and bloggers, whether you were a mom or not, no matter what your niche was, um, even yeah. going into technology, you know, CES started bringing in more, you know, the unboxings became big. I mean, mm-hmm. I met Issa Rae at our blog conference. She was, she's awkward black girl to me. Like all of us, <laughs> we all started at the same time. The, the, the lovies of the world, Issa Rae was awkward black girl. Like we were all at the same blog conferences, either yeah. speaking or in the audience. Were you at Blogalicious? 
Yeah, I was I was on the call that started bl- that like when they reached out to a group of us. <laughs> so shout out to Stacy and and Nadia and the crew and Justice Jones. Shout out to all of them. Like we were all part of that movement within this industry, you know. So we were the pioneers in that. I remember when Blogalicious started, the advice I gave before the first conference, I said, "Look, we can't be like these other conferences. We need to make it known that, yes, the topics are focused on women of color, but we are inclusive enough that you can still come into our space if you want to learn more about your audience. Because you may be a white blogger, but you might have women of color that read your blog. So you need to know how to talk to them properly. Mm-hmm. So I said, as long as we make it inclusive, I think it'll be just as good or better than the bloggers and the type a mom and all those other conferences of the world. Blogalicious was truly inclusive where it was centered around women of color, but it was inclusive that that conversation also included women that were not of color so they could have a better understanding of their audience and themselves and their relationships with women of color. Yeah. I say I remember that time very vividly because I was also super active with with blogging and in and around different blogging communities sort of right around that time. So in 2004, 2004, 2005, I started the Black Weblog Awards, and that was like the first Internet event that really celebrated what like black bloggers and YouTubers back then and and video bloggers were kind of doing and even podcasters, although it wasn't really, it was sort of called podcasting back then, although it wasn't certainly as prevalent as it is now. But that part when you were talking about how media didn't respect blogs, I mean, I, I think it felt like overnight I went from people not even talking about blogs or the Black Web Blog Awards or anything to like NPR all of a sudden having a segment on their one of their shows talking to bloggers and everything. So like, it's amazing how one that has sort of changed, but I think that an interesting thing, especially if we look at it now is that a lot of, I would say like black personalities that you hear on podcasts or that you see in conferences and things like that got their start back then as bloggers. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There would be no insecure if it wasn't for awkward black girl. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If it wasn't for that voice and that space that we all created for ourselves back then. And most yep. and I do remember the black web blogs. So shout out to you for that. And I also joined a group called Style Coalition by Yuli Ziv. So that was like all fashion blogs. And Yuli, you know, she's a truth because she's also a pioneer as a woman from, she was an immigrant, but she since has become a a citizen, but she was one of the pioneers in pushing for the fashion blogs to be recognized. So she brokered a deal where we became part of L magazine's digital ad network. Oh, wow. So I, you know, style mom spent a year and two years in the L magazine network, but because I started doing more agency work, I couldn't keep up the views to to stay in the network. So I had to come out of the network, but we had a nice little run, you know, and, and different partnerships and videos. We, we were creating content for like brands such as like JC Penney's. There was a commercial with me and my youngest son in the park. So there was some really good pioneers, women of color and not of color that really kind of pushed that envelope to get that respect and that partnership. Now, I mean, everybody plays in the same sandbox now. It's Mm -hmm. like, 
it's it's just part of the industry now, which, but those growing pains, they were something. They were something, <laughs> I tell you. I mean, th- there has to be something said. And I, I mean, I hope one day, like a filmmaker or a documentarian does something about kind of those early, I would say maybe from like 2000 to 2010, like those early days of, of black people online and blogging and stuff. Cause the utility of having to create our own spaces to use our voice to really kind of connect with people really is, is understated. Like when people talk about the history of the web from back then, black people are hardly ever in it, hardly ever noticed at all. You know, like you said, we really, you really have to make your own space and you have to stake your claim and you partner with people. You made coalitions, you, you know, brokered deals like, no one's teaching anyone how to do all that stuff. You're having to kind of like forge this trail on your own. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And no, I sat in a u- unique position because even though I was on the, I was a part of those quote unquote blogging pioneers, I was still working at agencies. Mm-hmm. So I would bridge that gap and be the internal voice for the bloggers and tell the agencies how to work with bloggers properly. Tell the PR department, mm-hmm. you know, you don't just like, it's not just for free. You have to look at this yeah. as a media buy. If you're willing to buy 10 banner ads, what's the difference if you're going to purchase a sponsored blog post, you just have to add it to the media plan. It's not rocket science. Same thing for if you're willing to pay a photographer for 10 photos, what's the difference if you're playing a blogger for their 10 photos and commentary around the product? Mm -hmm. Same difference. You just have to respect their aesthetic and their work ethic that this is their business as well. They are a media partners. All bloggers are, or just, they're another media partner, just like any other media entity or publication. But once social media kind of took off and showed the power of online influence and, and the voices that bloggers had, I think it really worked out well for the industry because that actually let them we were able to put in segmentation more because some of these blogs could be so niche and you're like, okay, we have this product. We only want to talk to earthy, crunchy moms that are looking for green foods for their baby. Well, there's a blog for that, (laughs) you know, and you won't have to compete in a space of a major magazine that may have 10 different green foods in it. You know what I mean? So there's, there's a blog that that's for that, or there's an influencer that, that puts that kind of content out there. So, and I think they realized when they started to see the ROI on working with influencers, I did a lot of teaching at the agencies. And then (laughs) on the opposite side of that, I, at Blogalicious, the two times I was on the panel, it was always to kind of speak to the bloggers about how to work with brands and how to position. So like what I know what agencies look for, this is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you my insights as agency exec on what they're looking for, for bloggers, whether it's from tracking or whether it's how you package what you, you know, what you need to do. And it's it's funny because that's how I, you know, during that time of when we were doing Blogalicious, our first Blogalicious was in Atlanta, by the way. I remember. Yeah. I think, I don't know if it was the Source Awards or Hip Hop Awards was going on. I don't know. It was just mad ratchet in the hotel. (laughs) 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 We were dying at the same time as the conference. So that was fun. But I remember that's when I met Kim Coles. Actually, that's the kind of, that first is like when we all kind of got the meet in person. So I met Kim Coles. Oh, wow. Okay. Kim sat in my session 
And she's like, I've taken three pages of notes because she was reinventing herself as an mm-hmm. online personality and figuring out how she can work with brands and get yeah. sponsors because, you know, she already came from the TV industry. So she already knew the value of that. Yep. And that's how, you know, we kind of build a relationship was because she sat in the audience for my panels. Like I took like two, three pages of notes for you. She Her she did and, some stuff you know, with the with the Black Weblog Awards, too, I think a couple of years after that. But yeah, right. you're right. Yeah, she was reinventing herself. Yep. And that's how I, you know, built those relationships. And then you have the the awesome personalities like Lovey and, um, mm-hmm. you know, my other friend P- Patrice Afrobella. Afrobella, you know, so we, yeah. Yeah, we had we we had our our click of girls, if you will, <laughs> that were you know trying to pave the way. But we always support and have love for one another. That whole community because of what we had to go through and, and pushing through and, and come yeah. together. So I'm, I'm super proud to have been a part of that and to see where people like Lovey and Issa have gone and, and Patrice uh, with Afrobella, who's writing for a lot of major publications magazine or Nichelle Gaynor, who actually is the other Nichelle that's also from South Jersey with <laughs> who has vintage black glamour and those mm-hmm. beautiful coffee table books, you know, I need to get um, that book. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm proud to be a, a part of that. Like I, I know some super dope women that have done a lot and paved the way like these, these little girls on TikTok and, and doing it for the grand. They don't know what we had to go through to even get the recognition so they could be influenced. Yeah. Y'all really like did the damn thing. Like y'all paved the way for that. Totally. Right. Right. So it's definitely a proud part of the industry that I'm I'm proud to be a part of. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? I mean, just based off what you've been talking about now, you're doing so much, you've contributed so much to the industry. Like, what's next for you? What do you want to do next? Well, I still want to take this agency to the next level. And by the way, Patrice Afrobella, she told me to start my agency like five years before I did. (laughs) So I'm going to give her a shout out for that. She's like, you need to just go out on your own because a lot of times I would help them broker their deals, you know, with brands and things. She's like, you should just start repping influencers and bloggers. I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. I mean, I like helping my friends and I like a part of that world, but I still always had the drive to see the bigger picture. Like I want to work on campaigns where it's not just influencers, but we're also building a web experience or we're building an app and we're doing a commercial and we're doing this. So I always have love for looking at a campaign and all the various mediums and, and manipulating all the mediums at once. That's where I really get my juices from. So I think in the next five years, we'll see some growth out of our agency we do have a growth plan in place. We need to formalize a little bit more, but we at least have the next two years, kind of our next 18 month growth plan in place. But in five years, you know, I'd, I'd like to be sitting in a, a space where, you know, we've gotten to 20, 30 people at our agency and we, we are working on some really cool campaigns and, you know, we are still being good stewards in the community and, and being that culturally responsible voice. I also sat in on the four A's the Advertising Association Diversity and Inclusion Congress. And that was like, they put us to work for like four days, to be honest with you. Like that was two eight-hour day sessions twice to kind of write a new manifesto for diversity, equity, inclusion for advertising agencies and for brands. 
So I want to continue to do that work and, and, and start equalizing the space here. Cause I remember when Madison Avenue and a color line was written by Jason Chambers, you know, the needle hasn't moved since then. I, I've already been in this diversity fight when, you know, back then, even before I started to style mom, my, 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 um, aim account used to read 3%. People used to say, what the, what the hell does 3% mean? Because <laughs> I'm 3% of people of color that are either director or hire at an agency. Mm-hmm. That's what it means. You know, I still, I still want to lead by example, if you will. And that's how I, I see it going in five years, you know, bringing on somebody to kind of blow style mom out as a brand, as a sub brand, you know, for brand enchanting media and, 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 you know, us blowing out our, our podcasts, the culture niche that kind of dives into the intersection of creativity and culture responsibility and, and imagery and, and, and technology and really blowing out the agency brand more, but also making an impact on our industry and within society and culture with the work I do, you know, as a, you know, with the small businesses and those types of things, but just keeping that work going and leaving some type of legacy. Cause my oldest son, he is our head of production. Nepotism is real. <laughs> plus you need to pay back these parent plus loans I got out for you. <laughs> but to leave something for the next generation and just have a really good, you know, viable agency that has done some good work and is known for doing some good things in the industry and just known for being good people to work with. That's really more important to me. I know a lot of people say, oh, want to win five awards. No, I just, I want to just remember for, I want to be remembered that, you know, we were good to work with and, and we were really responsible with our work. Not just that we were creative and we could, you know, yeah, we all want to win awards for our creativity and for doing something cool or, you know, manipulating a technology in a cool way for a campaign. But the, at the end of the day, I want, I want it to be about the people behind the work. Like these are, these are people that are really trying to raise the standard of emotional intelligence on how you collaborate and how you work with various agencies and brands. And, you know, we were always on the right side of culture, society, and history. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and the the agency and everything? Where can they find that online? Absolutely. Well, to find out about me, I am Nichelle N. Pace on Twitter. Um, that's with an N and two L's and shout out happy birthday to my namesake, Nichelle Nichols, also a <laughs> pioneer, live long and prosper. Good people out there uh, for all of those who were Trekkies. But yeah, I was named after Nichelle Nichols. So my mom named me Nichelle Nicole. <laughs> and you can also find me as Nichelle Pace, no N, on Instagram. And then from my company, it's Brand Enchanting. And that's on uh, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, same, same handle, Brand Enchanting. All right. Sounds good. Well, Nichelle Pace, I want to thank you so much for for coming on the show, really for kicking off uh, 2021 here on Revision Path. I mean, just hearing your story and your background and how much you have done 
is super inspiring to me. Hopefully it's inspiring to people that are listening. I mean, I want people to be motivated by your story because certainly it seems like you've lived like five lives <laughs> in terms of <laughs> the work that you've done and the, the, the people that you've been able to meet and inspire and everything. And you're still continuing to do that now through, uh, through brand enchanting. So, uh, best of luck to you in 2021. I'm really excited to see what you do next. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate you having me, Maurice. It's been it's been awesome. Big, big thanks to Nichelle Pace. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Nichelle and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. I want to hear from you. Did you like this episode? What did you think about the podcast overall? Don't be a stranger. Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram, just at Revision Path. You can search for that. Or leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let the world know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.